We're going to read verses 1 through 4 of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his holy prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. The title of the message this morning simply is, The Declaration of His Resurrection. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word. And Father, we rejoice in that because we know that he is alive. Have we serve a risen Savior who liveth to make intercession for us even this present hour, who paid the atone, made the atonement for our sin, that we might have the righteousness of God in him. And Father, we rejoice in that precious truth And I pray as we look into the word of God today that we would be encouraged, that we would rejoice, that we would know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his image. And we'll thank you and praise you for what you do, we pray. Pray, Father, if there be any in our midst this morning who do not have that assurance, do not know the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I have a personal relationship with him. I pray that today they will realize their need, put their faith and trust in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One commentator said, speaking of the resurrection, quote, this is the center of the gospel. The, quote, son, unquote, that everything else orbits around. Unquote. You know, it is the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the distinctive doctrine of the Christian faith. No other religion teaches this kind of resurrection. Now, there are some that teach that you come back to another form of life, maybe a higher or maybe a lower, depending on what you lived. Uh, but no one teaches this, this resurrection. Uh, from the debt. And so this morning, as we look at this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to have two points, just two this morning, but don't you know, get too much wishful thinking and getting out of here sooner. But uh, first of all, the proofs of Christ's resurrection, and then I want us to notice the power of his resurrection. So, so we think about the proofs of Christ's resurrection. The first thing I see, think as we consider this, the fact that he that of his resurrection is, as a proof, was he was declared dead. You know, to be resurrected, you have to be dead. You have to first die. You know, after all, one of the theories that's been put forth to explain, a, the resur- explain away the resurrection is called the swoon theory. Also called the resuscitation theory. And this theory was first proposed by, in 1828 by a guy by the name of H.E.G. Paulus, who was a German theologian and a critic of the Bible. He claims that Jesus did not die. Rather, 
he suggested that Jesus merely fainted on the cross from pain, shock, and loss of blood, and then was mistakenly buried alive. Well, let's think about it just a little bit. Some historical facts about the resurrection. Of course, Jesus was beaten to bloody shreds by a whip used by Roman guards. Jesus was so weak after his torture they couldn't carry his cross to the crucifixion site. Jesus had spikes driven through his wrists and feet, hung bleeding for six hours. The Romans thrust a spear deep into Jesus' side, confirming beyond doubt that Jesus was dead. Jesus was prepared for burial according to exacting Jewish custom. His body was encased in wrapped linen and spices. He was then entombed and a mass of heavy rock was rolled across the tomb entrance. And a unit of guards vigilantly guarded the entrance, knowing they would be punished if Jesus' body went AWOL. But the swoon theory suggests that the cool, damp air of the tomb somehow revived Jesus after three days and he decided to exit. Despite not having access to desperately needed medical care and nourishment, Jesus supposedly managed to unwrap his dressings and then, in the total darkness of the tomb, locate and roll away the mass of stones, sealing the tomb entrance, and then, still unnoticed by the guards, he supposedly walked away on feet punctured by cross nails to rejoin his disciples. As one person said, is the most significant problem with this theory is that it greatly underestimates the severity of Jesus' wounds. Historical sources confirmed that Jesus was horribly tortured and confirmed dead by several sources before he was removed from the cross. For example, in John chapter 19, in John chapter 19, in verses 30 to 35, John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation of the body, uh, the preparation, it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. One of the soldiers of the spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out water and blood. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. See, we see here, the Romans declared him dead. Notice, you know, John saw him give up the ghost. John saw him uh, uh, pierced. He saw them break the legs of the others. He saw them not break his legs because they said he's already dead. So you have the testimony of John and the Romans. We'll go to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Again, when Jesus cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, commend my spirit. Having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that sight, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts in return. And all his acquaintance 
And the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. And, and, and notice uh, verse uh, uh, 52, talking about Joseph of Arimathea. This man went on to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher, which was in, hewn in the stone, wherein never was a man before laid. So again, you have here the witnesses and the, the, the Roman centurion who said, truly this, when Saul, what was done, Saul, how he died, he said, truly this was the Son of God. He recognized that he had died. But look at also at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. In verse 62, <clears throat> to me this is the interesting one. Because these deny, they said he, he, he was stolen. Matthew twenty seven sixty two says, Now the next day, the followed day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive. After three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate saith unto him, Ye have a watch, go your way, and make it as sure as you can. So they went and made this sepulchre sure, sealing a stone, and setting a watch. So here the Pharisees acknowledge that he was dead, and also, really, you have Pilate giving credence to the fact that he was, the de- he was dead. You see, he was declared dead by witnesses. Sufficient number of witnesses. One writer said this, quote, If Christ had only swooned, he still would have been half dead. A great deal of time would have been needed for recuperation. In his weakened condition, he could not have walked the seven miles on the Emmaus Road. It would have been impossible for someone who had only resuscitated from the agonies the Lord endured with the beatings and the crucifixion to so quickly give the impression that he was the conqueror of death and the grave, the prince of life. Unquote. So you have the swoon theory. Of course you have other theories. There's the hallucination theory. But it's really kind of hard to believe that 500 people hallucinated at one time. It's like one guy said, if, if one person hallucinated said he saw Elvis, he said, you know, I could maybe believe, you know, that he's hallucinating and, you know, he's maybe on drugs. He said, but, but 500 people on the Shores of Maine fishing saying they saw Elvis rising from the dead. He said, you know, that would be kind of skeptical. Now, 500 people hallucinating at one time? Uh, This, of course, would also mean the Roman soldiers, the Pharisees, Pilate, Joseph, and Nicodemus, all hallucinated. Of course, there's also the conspiracy theory that the disciples made up the whole story. The historian Eusebius said satirically, quote, Just let us all bind together to invent all the miracles and resurrection appearances, which we never saw, and let us carry the sham even to death. Why not die for nothing? Why dislike torture and whipping inflicted for no good reason? Let us go out to all the nations and overthrow their institutions and denounce their gods. And even if we don't convince anybody, at least we'll have the satisfaction of drawing down on ourselves the punishment for our own deceit. Unquote. 
a conspiracy? Would you make up a conspiracy that brings death to yourself? No, he was declared dead. He was also given a normal Jewish burial. Look at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 43. Verse 42 says, And now when the evening was come, because it was preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which had also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were de- already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew of it, the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he brought, bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in his sepulcher, which was hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone under the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary the mother of Jesus, beheld where he was laid. So he was given a normal Jewish burial. Now, the Jewish burial, they would take the body or the corpse and they would wash it with water and with perfumes and ointments. And then they wrapped it in bands uh, of strips of cloth. And then the body was carried to the tomb. And of course, this is what, this is what they did. Uh, again, in Luke 23, it describes for us what Joseph and, of course, Nicodemus also uh, helped him. Uh, you know, in, in Luke 23 there, verses 50 through, 50, 50 through 53, it describes how they took the body, they, they, they wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in the rock. Uh, and, of course, this is the testimony of Scripture. It is declared in all the Gospels, and it's also preached in Acts and spoken of in the epistles. Uh, for example, Acts chapter 2. Uh, the very first sermon that Peter preaches after the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and forerunners of God, ye have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and slain whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it's not possible that he should be holden of death. So, you see here, of course, Peter is saying that to them, that to those who had crucified him, really, that they had, he had been put to death, he had been crucified, he had been slain, and God had raised him up. Uh, and again, verse 32, he says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. And of course Romans chapter 1 verse 4 it says declared to be, be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In Romans chapter uh, 4 and, and you know throughout the book of Romans there's many places where it talks about the death, the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 25 says who was delivered for our offenses was raised again for our justification. In chapter 5 and verse 6 who went for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. 
And again in verse 10, For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Chapter 6, verse 10, For in that He died, He died unto sin once, but in that He liveth, He liveth unto God. You know, and then you go to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, and the whole chapter, chapter 15, is about the death and resurrection of Christ. And when Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, again he says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who, was, who raised him from the dead. In Ephesians 1.20, again, uh, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. So again, you have the death and the resurrection of Christ. And of course, you have that classic passage in Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 8, uh, where it declares that being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. So that that's, again, speaks of the death and the resurrection of Christ. You know, see, this is the gospel. The, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But you know, people are still making their own theories. When someone will not believe the promises of God or the word of God, the plain words of God, and apply them to themselves, you are in reality believing, trusting in your own theory, your own lie. You know, a theory is simply a conjecture based on subjective experience. But the resurrection of the Son of God is established on verifiable evidence evidence as would be used in a court of law. Someone said, you know, this scenario has been played, replayed in countless movies. A man's on trial for a crime he didn't commit. And shortly before the guilty verdict is pronounced, a passionate investigator tracks down a hesitant eyewitness who testifies and proves the hopeless man's innocence. See, a credible witness can radically change a jury's perspective in any case. We don't have just one credible witness. There are many credible witnesses. Referring to the over 500 eyewitnesses, John Wesley called them a, quote, a glorious and incontestable Proof, unquote. Spurgeon said, quote, The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the best attested facts on record. There were so many witnesses to behold it that if we do not in the least degree receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot, we dare not doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. He concluded, Brethren, such is the evidencing power of the resurrection of Christ that when every other argument fails your faith, you may find safe anchorage in this assured fact, unquote. What about some legal, what the legal minds say? Well, Simon Greenleaf, who uh, was one of the founders of Harvard Law School, uh, he authored an authoritative three-volume text, a treatise on law of evidence, which is still considered the greatest single authority on evidence in the entire liter literature of legal procedure. 
He also, so literally, he wrote the rules of evidence for a U.S. legal system. Uh, but he was an atheist until he accepted a challenge by his students to investigate the case for Christ's resurrection. And after personally collecting and examining the evidence based on the rules of evidence that he established, Greenleaf became a Christian and wrote the classic testimony of the evangelists. And he said this, Let the gospel's testimonies be sifted, as it were given in a court of justice on the side of the adverse party, the witness being subjected to the rigorous cross-examination. The result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. Unquote. Sir Lionel Luckhu, it's kind of a funny name, Luckhu, he's considered one of the greatest lawyers in British history. He is, he is recorded in the Guinness Book of World Records as the, quote, world's most successful advocate, unquote, with 245 consecutive murder acquittals. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth twice. Luck who declared, quote, I humbly add, I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and I'm still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in my jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt, unquote. And Lee Struble, a Yale-educated journalist, award-winning journalist for Chicago Tribune, he was an atheist, decided to compile a legal case against Jesus Christ to prove him a fraud by way of evidence. As legal editor of the Tribune, Struble's area of expertise was courtroom analysis. To make his case against Christ, Struble cross-examined a number of Christian authorities, recognized experts in their own fields of study, including PhDs from prestigious academic centers as Cambridge, Princeton, and Brandeis. He conducted his examination with no religious bias other than his own predisposition to atheism. After the examination, uh, examined for himself, Struben became a Christian. Stunned by his findings, he organized the evidence into a book entitled The Case for Christ, which won the Gold Medallion Book Award for Excellence. Struble asked one thing of each reader, Remain unbiased in the examination of the evidence. In the end, judge the evidence for yourself, acting as the lone juror in the case for Christ. You see, there is sufficient, more than sufficient evidence to prove that Christ died, was buried, and that he rose again. I mean, 500 eyewitnesses at one time. But don't notice the second thing. Not only do we see the proof of his resurrection, the power of his resurrection. Verse 4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Again, the, the bodily resurrection of Christ is the cardinal, or chief, you might say, that means chief, or principal doctrine of the Christian faith. In fact, without the resurrection, Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, said, if there's no resurrection, our faith is vain. Christ is a fraud if there is no resurrection. 
in verse 12 of that chapter, he says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You know, if, if, if Christ is not risen, the disciples live the most miserable of lives. Why would Paul live the life he did if Christ did not rise from the dead? Why would Peter and John suffer the, the persecution and endure the hardships of, of, of life that did if there be no resurrection from the dead? You know, again, this is a central teaching of the gospel. It focuses around the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the evidence of Jesus' humanity is his human birth, and we see that in verse 3. He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. But the evidence, the evidence of his deity, that he is the Son of God, is his resurrection from the dead. And so we see here that he is visibly... When it says he's declared to be the Son of God with power, it means he is visibly manifested to the world to be the Son of God. The word declared here means, for though Christ was the Son of God before his resurrection, yet he was openly appointed or openly declared or manifested to be such among men by this crowning event. You see, this is the visible, verifiable proof that Jesus Christ was, is, who the Old Testament prophets proclaimed him to be and who he claimed himself to be. John said in John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He's referring to Jesus Christ. That he is God. In John 1.29, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then in verse 34, he says, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Or that was John the Baptist. In chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus makes this statement, And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house, a house of merchandise. My father's house. And they recognized that place as God's house. This would be God's temple. In chapter 3, verse 2, of course, Nicodemus recognized him as a man sent from God. But Jesus declared who he really was in verse 13. No man has sent it up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. I'm the God-man. 
I'm omnipresent. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. I'm the Son. You know, chapter 4 and verse 25. God is the Spirit. You know, that, 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 that uh, uh, Samaritan woman you know, said, when, 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 the, when the Messiah is coming, He will tell us all things. Jesus said, I that speak unto thee am He. I'm He. Chapter 6, you know, just through the Gospel of John alone, chapter 6, he said, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. In John chapter 8, verse 54, he said, before Abraham was, I am. That's verse 58. In chapter 10, verse 18, he declared, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. In chapter 30, he said, I and my Father are one. You know, these statements and teachings of the Lord Jesus were, were verified by the miracles he performed. You know, he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. He calmed the storms. He healed the sick, made the blind to see, the lame to walk. He cleansed the leper. He put a coin in a fish's mouth to pay his taxes and Peter's. He cast out devils. He raised the dead. He forgave sin. Oh, only God can forgive sin. That's because he is the Son of God. And the resurrection proves it's a visible manifestation to the world that He is the Son of God. He's God in flesh. But notice the second thing here. It authenticated His Father's acceptance of His perfect, sinless offering for our sin. In verse 4 of Romans 1 again it says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Notice it says, according to the Spirit of holiness. You know, this statement, according to the Spirit of holiness, is made to set him apart from the seed of David, according to the flesh. If you notice in verse 3 it says, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness. So as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, you know, this again, this statement is made to separate Him, or set Him apart from the seed of David, according to the flesh. You know, so, so as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, uh, the accepted sacrificial offering for the sin of the world, you know, His holy nature set Him apart, from his created beings. Though he was of the seed of David, or made after the seed of David, or of the seed of David, he took a body of the lineage of the seed of David, and took a flesh upon himself, yet it, it means here that he is yet distinct, or separate from, or different than, the seed of David. 
It speaks of his supremacy and majesty. And this is what Hebrews is all about. In Hebrews 1 talks about how God is, the Son of God is better than all the created beings. He's better than the angels, chapter 1. He's better than Moses, chapter 3. He's better than Aaron, chapter 5. And then he's better than the Old Testament sacrifices, chapters 8, 9, and 10. He's different. He, is the, he has the spirit of holiness. He is, the, he is the holy one. He doesn't have a sin nature. He never sinned. You see, he is distinctly different than the seed of David according to the flesh. You know, God the Son, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that God the Son took a body of flesh. If I can look, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. You know, God the Son took a body. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And verse 14 for as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that the power of death, that is the devil. So he took part of the same. He took of the flesh of the seed of David. But he didn't take his blood. He didn't take his sin nature. And because he was the Son of God... He was an acceptable sacrifice, sacrificial offering for our sin and the sin of the world. You know, Hebrews 10, verse 5, it says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and an offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. You know, he came to die. And the resurrection proves or declares the Father's acceptance or approval of his offering. You notice chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through, or 12 through 14 says this, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. See, he's contrasting the Old Testament sacrifices that men brought, which they had to bring every year. And Aaron, the priest, not only had to bring the offerings for the people, but he had to bring offerings for himself. Continually, every year, over and over again. But not this man. Not this man. Because he was the holy sacrifice. He was the sacrifice without sin. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his foot's full. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You know, Isaiah 53, 11 says this. He, that is God, shall see the travail of his, that is Jesus' soul, and shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. God the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice of his Son because it was a pure, holy, without sin sacrifice. 
even though it was a man. But it was a man without sin. He was a man according to the spirit of holiness. You see, he's different than the seed, the rest of the seed of David. Of course, the Bible tells us in 1 John 3, 5, you know he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. You see, the power of his resurrection is that he's declared to be the Son of God, and that his offering was accepted by the Father. It satisfied God's standard of holiness for sin. It paid our sin debt in full. He has perfected forever them that come unto God by Him. You see, there is indisputable, verifiable evidence to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the question is this. Have you accepted the evidence as true and acted in faith by receiving him as your sacrifice for sin? Or are you like the Pharisees and the world making up your own ideas and theories because you refuse to believe the record that God gave the Son? There's an interesting statement in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. It says, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, the reality of it is, the Jews asked a sign. Jesus said, I'm not giving you any sign but this, Jonah. He was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. And the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the art of the earth. You see, the Jews continually ask God for signs, for a sign. And God is now saying, here is your sign. It's in blood, neon red. Christ died, shed his blood, was buried. He rose from the dead to give you life. Will you receive the sign? You see, this is, this is how God visibly manifests his son to the world. Here's your sign. The resurrection. A verifiable sign. But you know the interesting thing is that they still don't believe it. Some did. But as a whole, the nation didn't. One man said this, quote, Men will die for what they believe to be true, though it may be actually false. They do not, however, die 
what they know is a lie. Unquote. You know, there's a lot of people who die for a lie in our world. They die believing, believing lies. But people don't die knowing what they're dying for is a lie. You know, Christ died and rose again that you might have life. It is a fact, a historical, provable fact. Are you going to believe it and act on it? It requires a response from us. Or will you die believing a lie? You know, his purpose in dying and resurrecting was to give you life and life more abundant. But you must receive it. You must embrace it. Have you received it? Have you embraced it? Have you accepted the Son of God as your Lord and as your Savior from sin? Oh, he was declared, he is declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of Christ. It is a verifiable, provable fact that we can rest on with certainty. But have you embraced that truth? Have you accepted it as your own?